0: Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya.
1: And I'm Thomas. And we are your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world.
0: This week on Q-Talks, we're talking to Yasreen Ivanyaya, Director of Advanced Concepts and Technologies at Inmarsat. She has also done an MBA at the Cambridge Judge Business School. We look forward to speaking to Yasrine about her insights on innovation within industry.
1: Hi, Yasreen. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, we're delighted to have you, and, and maybe to give our listeners an introduction, uh, you can start with a brief overview of your background.
2: Sure. So, um, I guess I would start with my role, basically. So, I, I am the director of advanced concepts and technologies in a satellite company called Inmarsat. And Inmarsat provides, um, global satellite connectivity to anything that is on the move. And what I mean by that is means whether you're in the air for, so the aviation market, basically, or at sea for the maritime markets or inland for like remote location or humanitarian application, you will probably, probably need uh, satellite communication for uh, any operational uh, applications. And uh, I have been working in the space industry for now about 15 years. Uh, after completing uh, two masters of science in in the UK and and in France. So I'm basically an engineer, uh, working still in engineering, and my role at the moment is very much about how to make innovation happen in in my industry and in in the company I work for. And you can almost qualify me as a um, satellite communication intrapreneur uh, who works very much with entrepreneurs.
1: Nice, and and now we 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 also know what got you the title of rocket scientist at the Judge Business School in Cambridge.
2: Exactly, so yeah, I completed my uh, my MBA, Executive MBA, about two years ago, and and we're a cohort of about eighty people, and everybody coming from very different backgrounds and, and industry, and, and mine is space. So I, I think there is something very uh, mysterious and, and magical about space. So yeah, I am sometimes called a uh, Rocket scientist, the cosmic girl, anything people like—it's quite funny. It's quite quite nice, but uh, I think the, the the reason why people do that is because it's uh, it's quite rare to find a woman in the in innovation, in space, in engineering, leading um, advanced research. So uh, so yeah. I'm quite glad they call me this way.
0: <laughs> I think that's great. And it definitely leads on to um, what we wanted to mention also is that we've recently launched a new mini series called The Female Founders in the Spotlight. Um, the purpose is pretty much in the title that it aims to provide a platform for female founders of early stage startups. And so you yourself being, as you've said, um, being hailed as a fe- inspirational female, um, what has been your experience of having, Um, female mentors or people that inspire you or you yourself being an inspiration to females in innovation so
2: first of all i'd like to say what you're doing uh, by bringing female founders in the spotlight is is very important Uh, we all know that they struggle more than men in for example raising capital so so what you're doing is very good Um, And I do also try to support women in my own way. And uh, at Inmarsat, the company I work for, I've founded and and have been chairing a a women's network um, that brings also women into the spotlight. Uh, and give them opportunities to to grow, to uh, to uh, be visible, to have a community they could relate to, and have peer to peer mentoring um, and and support, and also giving back to I would say society, but more importantly, showing to young boys and, and girls in in the STEM field and and in general uh, that uh, uh, women can also be uh, working in the space industry, which uh, today is, is very male dominated. So uh, so yeah, that's that's the kind of initiative I'm, I'm involved in, but. To answer more directly your question, I did struggle to find a female mentor uh, because there isn't uh, that many in the space industry. So sometimes I have a look at uh, women in adjacent industries, or but it's really f- hard to relate. I'm In my case, I'm half French, half Moroccan. I wish there was someone with a mixed background uh, like me that I could look up to, um, but there isn't that many in, in my sector, so, so it's, it's difficult. But um, yeah, when it comes to mentoring, I would say it's important for women to be mentored and to mentor. And I do mentor graduates as well as women much more older than than me. And it's quite eye opening because you can see women suffering a lot from uh, lack of confidence and not putting themselves out there. But what I think is also important, we should look at, um, in general, is, is going beyond the mentoring, but actually the sponsoring. And if people who have a seat in the executive room, whether they're men or women, and they can be the advocates and the sponsors of talented women they can spot, then they should be their ambassador, ambassadors in, in that boardroom and, and bring them forward.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really a really good point about um, promoting if you are yourself a, um, in a position that you can help other other females. I think that's great. Um, and so to to talk more on that point, you've mentioned that um, you are in charge of advanced technologies at in Marsat. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about what that involves.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I would say my, my job is, li- is divided into uh, two categories. Uh, a small part of my time, I would say maybe 20% of my time, I would be more like the think tank or the consultancy arm of the company, which means people who have uh, deep technology questions, they don't fully understand, let's say in the Internet of Things market, and they don't understand which waveform and you're hearing about narrowband IoT and LoRa and SIGFOX and what's the difference and what's the pro and cons and how can we make it work with satellite in geostationary, uh, narrow, um, low earth orbit, those kind of questions, they come to us and we, we study them and we, and we make recommendations. We also, as part of this consultancy arm, uh, exposed to uh, startups and all the startups who want to explore partnership or access our infrastructure or explore new business model would be uh, coming through uh, my team. Now, where we, we spend most of our time, and I would say a good 80% of our time, is building new concepts. And from that perspective, we're not necessarily a, an R&D, group hidden in a lab, not at all. We're here to build new business opportunities that will generate large amounts of revenues in the, in the foreseeable future by looking at either innovating in, in business model innovation or in um, kind of infrastructure or new markets in which the company is not present today. So usually it's a combination of both. You can't just innovate using new technology with new customers and new markets without being creative also on the business model. And I think bringing the two together in a, in a, what I call an experimentation mindset, which is very iterative and, and tackling the high risk uh, but low cost at the beginning, is is the is the way we approach uh, innovation in my team.
1: That's really interesting, and, and given your your career in that space, uh, I, I'm sure you must have gained a lot of insights as to how innovation is enabled and, and happening in these larger organizations. So, I'm wondering for you, what have been some of the key insights you've you've gained?
2: Sure, I, I love these kind of questions because I can, I can talk about innovation for hours. So stop me when when you get, <laughs> you get bored. Um, uh, so. First of, first of all, what I've, the way I started it, because this department has been kind of tailor-made based on, on the recommendation I, I, I made to the companies, I started with a survey, trying to understand where do we believe across the company we are good at innovating and where we're not, and then identifying where we need to improve. And I've learned throughout this process all the, the mistakes to avoid and maybe the, the new mindsets we need to have. And rule number one is getting our house in order don't even try about thinking of innovating and creating new yet another new product without having your existing portfolio of product very well benchmarked against the industry average what is your year on year growth is it better or worse than the uh, uh, industry average because if it's worse then you have to ask yourself the question do you need to throw more money into it or do you need to kill the product Or what what else do you need to do? Why aren't you as competitive on this particular uh, aspect? So getting your house in order is is the prerequisite to any innovation. But then when you look at the innovation engine you have uh, in your company, I think the new mindset is what I call the experimentation mindset. And that means uh, being very specific in the way you design your innovations, as if you were designing a, a laboratory experimentation. You set your hypothesis, You design your experimentation, you run your experimentation, you measure it and you compare the results versus you confirm or not your original hypothesis and then you iterate again. And that's very, very important because that allows you to have a very well uh, thorough um, set of insights that educate you for the second round. And the way I'm introducing it in the company is I divide it into three types of experimentations. Type number one is what I call the proof of concept. So here is answering the question, does the technology work? And, and you would design your experimentation in a way that is proving that it works or it doesn't work because you're taking a high technological risk here. So that's your proof of concept. Or you can design a proof of value. In other words, are there a customer who wants this solution and how are they using it? And that's a completely different um, experimentation you're designing here. Or well, finally, uh, build a prototype which answer the question, can you actually make it at the right price point, price point at the right performance point, all, all those questions. But you do not do the three at the same time because then you don't know what you're measuring. So I, I do enforce uh, the fact that we're very much staying away from the business case approach, which is very much the way projects are done when it comes to what I call incremental innovation. When we, when we go and present a business case to, to a board and say, this is what we're going to do, we know already the market. Most likely we probably already know the technology. We know the distribution channel. It's quite easy to say we're going to make five, 10% year on year because we, we have all these elements under control. But when you're talking about disruptive innovation where you, it's greenfield market, you've never entered that as your, as the company it doesn't mean it hasn't been done somewhere else. Then you, you take more this uh, option value mindset, which is you're saying, I'm asking you, I don't know, 50K or 100K, whatever. But that gives you a foot in the door, that gives you the, the option to continue exploring and you can decide if yes or no you want to stay in this game or you, you want to, to step away. So that's, that's a very different way of approaching uh, innovation, I think, at least the, the way we, d- we do it. And, and finally, I approach innovation just like I would be a venture capitalist, which is I'm here to do a portfolio of innovation. I don't go all in with only one opportunity. I have a portfolio at the moment of maybe 15, 20 different projects. Some of them will succeed. Some of them will die. Each one of them dies for, for all sorts of reasons that I had not foreseen at the beginning of the project. But that's that's fine because that's by having this portfolio, you're betting on some opportunity to succeed. You're betting on others to not to succeed. You've designed your, your experimentation in a way that you're learning from all of them. And it's all very Important feedback that is useful for the future.
0: I think that's really interesting insight to hear. Um, something that I'm wondering is this um, option-driven or portfolio-based approach um, is sounds like something that is more possible to do in um, a larger organization as opposed to um, then if we're thinking about applying these approaches to startups. How can how can they do a similar? Um, mechanisms to what you're what you're saying
2: you're absolutely right uh, a small startup doesn't have yet a large portfolio of product to develop and actually on the contrary if i have a startup coming to me and saying i'm developing this new edge platform that can do agriculture and uh, and i don't know uh, mining and and whatever markets they're going after and can do a bit of everything my reaction will be, well, they're not focused, they haven't decided where they want to specialize yet, not worth working with them. So actually, it doesn't serve them to have a, a very big portfolio when it comes to startup trying to work with large companies. Having said that, the, the, the concept of experimentation mindset still applies to them. And actually, the experiment, experimentation mindset is very much kind of borrowed from the startup world. So so that, that I think startups do very, very well. What I think is important when you look at large corporations ver- versus uh, small startups is the complementary, complementarity of both. Uh, a startup is very quick is very fast is uh, is a, a risk taker is could be very focused on exactly what they're trying to develop they have developed some intellectual property i'm, I'm thinking of cambridge cambridge is very good of developing a new intellectual property and and patents and and they should leverage on that expertise that the large company don't have the time the energy the focus to to put their energy on so so that's very important having said that they could go and knock at the door of large corporations and, and leverage on their assets. Large corporations have access to customers, which maybe a startup doesn't have to. For me, if I want to launch a new concept in a large corporation, it's very easy to open those doors because I come with this heavy company behind me supporting it. Um, so they should leverage corporations to access customers. They should leverage to access infrastructure. If a startup comes to us and say, can we test this over the air over your satellite?" No problem. Whereas if they come and they say we need a million of investments, that's going to be harder in any way they can find that kind of money from a venture capital uh, fund. But what they won't get is the expertise we do have in the company, is the uh, infrastructure we can make available to them, is um, is all these um, assets they can they can they can use. And so startups have a very strong competitive advantage in being focused in being. Um, uh very well uh oriented. They know where they're going and they can heavily leverage on corporations if, if they want to.
0: Yeah, I think this point about leveraging corporations is particularly seen in Cambridge as you've as you've said, with companies like AstraZeneca being geographically positioned um well amidst the um biotech industry in or biotech startup ecosystem in Cambridge. Um just taking it back to what you were mentioning about the um experimentally driven mindset. Uh, would you mind putting you on a spot on the spot a little bit? Um, but what are maybe uh, three or so key things that um, startups should or questions that startups should answer when they're, they're trying to implement this mindset?
2: Yeah. So let me give you an example um, in, in the way we're, we're developing our innovation in-house. So right now, uh, let's say I'm trying to develop a new uh, communication product. Uh, that will be uh, put on a moving asset. Uh, I do not know which waveform and protocol to select. So I would do more like a, a paper exercise to look at maybe all the all the, the various uh, waveform available on the market and what are the, the different ways I could implement them. I would probably look at all the products that are existing on the shelf to uh, ensure uh, I don't have to, to have a heavy non-recurring engineering development cost. And and I would use existing software-defined radios and and things like that to do a very quick proof-of-concept that is not yet my final prototype or my final product, but is validating maybe what is the throughput I can achieve with those two or three different waveforms. And so I would design this uh, kind of quick and dirty uh, equipment that allows me to to test uh, the solution over satellite or with a simulator. and and run all sorts of simulations to validate that I I can then conclude on which technology I'm going to pick. Once I've chosen that technology, which means I've answered to my proof of concept, does the technology work? Now I know it can work. Now I know how much margins I should put in, in my system, things like that. I can move to the next stage, which is go and talk to the customer and have a presentation to the customer saying, I have this great product for you, this is the achievable capabilities it can uh, reach. We have demonstrated it over the year. Maybe we want to invite you to a demonstration or maybe we want to test it with your engineers and and explore how we could move forward towards that direction because now I know roughly how much it's gonna cost to build this thing. I know roughly um, the performance I can achieve. So now I'm bringing the customer in and I'm demonstrating through a proof of value that this product has value to the customer. Okay, it's only one customer. But that's OK. That's kind of indicating already how how they're going to adopt this product. And then the, the third stage will be, let's build this thing together. And at that point, I can go and, and ask for Innovate UK grants or I can go for uh, some initial seed money or pre-seed money through uh, through uh, some uh, angel investments, and I can demonstrate. I know exactly where I'm going. I have already talked to a few customers. Some of them have expressed interest. Have already told me how much they're ready to pay for it. Maybe I'm doing some uh, prototypes uh, with them, with some of their, for some of their applications, and and therefore I'm bringing confidence to my investor that whoever is giving me the money to bring that prototype to reality is confidence is going to reach its end results and its end conclusions. So it's it's kind of a gradual growth on the depth of knowledge you're getting on your product, but also gradual growth that confirms that you're going towards the right direction. And at any stage, you can pivot again and decide, no, we, we've decided to pick, I don't know, a product that is providing excellent performance, but the price points we're reaching or the way the customer is, is using it, even though they said they wanted i don't know 1 megabit per second service or whatever actually the way they're using it the way we saw them using it is only a very a very different use case which means we can reduce the cost here and there or or change the, the 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 network design in a way that is better suited for that customer
1: so i think that, that that's a really interesting conversation um because you offer this insight from um, doing innovation in a large organization where where do you think have startups inherent advantages uh, of doing innovation compared to a large, well-resourced organization?
2: Um, I think the, the startups have the very strong competitive edge when it comes to the speed at which they can innovate. Um, we struggle in large corporation in processes, for example. Um, We have silos in companies where each department has a narrow uh, scope. Now, the benefit when you're a startup is you can be three, four, five people turning their chairs around and then making a decision extremely quickly and reinventing your company within five minutes and and make the smart decision. In large corporations, as soon as a big investment decision has been taken, then it's very hard to go back. Uh, There's this kind of momentum that is already established and there's a lot of risk risk-averse people. So, uh, a startup is willing to take risk without any problem. An established company co- considered what's the impact on their image, on, on the way they, uh, they're going to – is it worth it? Is it generating enough revenue to be to be worth the, the risk? And as soon as you talk about opportunities to some people and you have your eyes sparkling, what they see is risk. Whereas the startup, when they see a risk, they see an opportunity. And and I think that that difference of of mindsets makes the startup extremely creative, extremely innovative. Uh, they connect the dots um, much uh, quicker and 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 probably much better than an established uh, company. Then of course th- there's different things that they don't necessarily know how to tackle, and and we have m- many more experts in large corporations. But they learn quickly as well. Those people are um, are extremely. Um, smart in, in the way they uh, they go from knowing nothing about how to manage your supply chain or your manufacturing into expert in, in how to build a product uh, anywhere in the world or, or how to manage a team, how to manage their finance. So those aspects are, are, are those skill sets are, are acquired very, very quickly by, by the entrepreneurs.
0: So taking this on a slight tangent, given your unique position as an innovator within industry, and given that many of our listeners are debating career options and have a certain innovative bend, um, they might be debating options between um, going full-time with a startup or uh, p- working part-time at a startup whilst having their job or taking a job within a larger company. What What is your view on uh, on those options and obviously it's potentially difficult but what would you recommend to people who are debating between these two quite different options
2: it is a very diffic- difficult question. I think it's a very personal question. Um, personally, I, ha- I haven't done it. Let- let's face it, I'm still the uh, the uh, intrapreneur staying in, in the corporate world. So uh, I don't know how to advise best. But what I would say is if you're early in your career and you're, for example, finishing your PhD or have finished your PhD, you came up with very very bright ideas that you're about to patent and you think there's a business behind it, then I would say just do the jump and, and go ahead and, and try it because there's no consequences for you in, in sacrificing between brackets two, three years of your life in building this business. Uh, you're, you're, used of, you're used to the kind of the, the student lifestyle and so the consequences of, of uh, taking that risk are probably minimum. Um, so I would say, yeah, go, go for it if you're early in your career. When you're in your mid-career and you don't know yet uh, whether your new ID is something you should like, should you quit your job and, and go all in or not, is a very hard one because there are probably family consequences and financial consequences that, that are uh, difficult decisions to, to take. But if you can handle the two uh, in parallel for as long as you can, so you can secure that transition i, I would i would do it probably in, in parallel having said that as the angel investor when i see a when i see a, a, an entrepreneur coming forward and saying i'm still part time working or i'm still full time working it sounds like the startup hasn't committed yet to to the product they they're working on so it's it's very hard very very hard to to give a recommendation
0: mm, that there, there lies the essential dilemma <laughs> Um, something else that I'm curious about um, given that as you said there aren't that many um, people or especially uh, mentors within the space industry are you able to maybe talk to us about a um, project that you've previously done then that is public that is public knowledge yeah
2: sure Um, for example um, I I worked for a while on the maritime safety uh, market and um, so Maritime safety is a core capability that uh, in Marsat provide, which is uh, providing safety of life at sea. Uh, so when a boat is in distress, you could organize the rescue and, and coordinate the rescue of that boat, and we have access to all sorts of database information of what's the size of the boat, how many uh, I don't know, lifeboats there on board, and etc. And etc. Et so I worked on the second generation of that that is introducing maybe a new, new capabilities that is uh, the operator for For example, who works on boat A and then move to boat B to have exactly the same um, maritime framework, where maritime safety framework on those screens. So harmonizing and standardizing those tools. Uh, developing new waveforms that are more efficient in the way we send the information developing chat capabilities that allow rescue coordination centers uh, to create a, a, a chat room between uh, all the boats that are in the vicinity of the boat in distress as well as coordinating with various rescue coordination center uh, let's say there's a boat in distress in Japan then you could have the rescue coordination center in Japan Creating a chat room with all the boats around the boat that has sent a distress alert and and kind of coordinating that rescue in an efficient way. So it's adding all those features that are not necessarily revolutionary, especially when you look at chat and things like that. But for the maritime market and particularly for the safety markets are quite new. And they take years. They take five years, 10 years sometimes to get approved by the International Maritime Organization. So we're still in the process. Those are are designs I worked on maybe five years ago and are still in the process of certification. So sometimes when you when you work on innovation that are related to topics that are regulated heavily, uh, it may take a very long time to reach the market. but they they bring um, an edge to, to the rescue coordination.
1: Well, it it certainly sounds like a very worthwhile effort and and thing to do. Maybe a a final question to wrap up everything. Given you're someone who has been working in the space industry for some time, we're wondering, how do you view the various entrepreneurial activities that are going on around the world in enabling people to live or travel in space?
2: Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, so travel in space is, is very much related to space tourism. I say today is very much uh, led by the, the, the billionaires of this world. So you have uh, Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic. You have Jess Bezos with a Blue Origin or Elon Musk with the, the BFR, the Big Falcon rocket. And they're all trying in one way or another to, to enable space tourism in uh, what we call orbital or suborbital or even lunar uh, orbits, and um, so uh, I'd love. I think if you have a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars available, uh, I think it would be a dream to 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 see the Earth from space and. Uh, and be uh, this uh, realize my my five year old dream of becoming one day an astronaut. So so yeah, I think it's great initiatives. What um, having said that, is targeted to a very small um, group of people, and, and I don't see how quickly we we're gonna make this achievable and affordable for for the for the mass. Having said that, there's as you said, there's another thing happening which is exploring living in space, and that's quite interesting because. Um, because I think it's human nature to try to explore um, the world, and and I think we've explored everything we could on Earth. So, so the natural thing to do is explore space. And uh, and right now we can see a big race uh, going for the moon. And um, maybe you asked me earlier what are the, what are the kind of projects I work on. I, I said I could not disclose it, but this one I can because it's a uh, public information. I do uh, work also on how to bring communication uh, around the moon as as one of the exploratory projects I, I work on. So how to make sure. The rovers and the landers we're sending around the moon can have satellite communication to bring the data back on Earth uh, quickly is, is one of the projects I work on. I think it's is very exciting. There is uh, the Lunar Gateway happening at the moment, which is the future of the International Space Station that is going to be put uh, soon in orbit. Uh, around the moon, and that uh, will allow, again, more innovation and, and research happening there. Um, and ultimately, the ultimate goal of today is to, is to get to Mars by 2030 and beyond. So the likes of Elon Musk are, are, are also working on, on how to, to make that happen. It will be a very long uh, travel, for sure. But um, I don't know when life in space will, will take place, but clearly there are a lot of initiatives happening around the world, NASA, ESA, the, the Indian, the Japanese, the Russians, the Chinese, all are, are racing to uh, to make this life happen uh, outside Earth uh, a reality.
1: Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm just wondering, maybe as a final question, so if, if, if you have a bright-eyed graduate who's super interested in, in the space industry and, and wants to be part of this journey, would you advise this person to start a startup or join one of these large organizations, some of which you just mentioned?
2: I would say start a startup, because now space and what we call the new space is, uh, is something very fashionable. There is more and more investment poured into the space industry. There's a lot of venture capital funds that are being created, specialized for space, angel funds specialized for space. And space is still considered as a critical national infrastructure. So uh, the GPS is is space, the the satellite communications are are in space, the the Earth observation imaging um, are also in space, and then there's all the um, Explorations uh, that are done and, and all the human human exploration flights, just like I mentioned, the Lunar Gateway and, and beyond. So, I think there is a lot of opportunities in space. It is a growing market. It is uh, less and less being led by uh, big established uh, companies, but actually the new space is is challenging uh, the established players. So, it's it is the right time to. Uh, to to enter this world however be very patient it is a you still need the large corporations or large governments behind it it is a slow moving industry and so um it needs to be a business you're building that can sustain a very slow growth uh, particularly in the initial years of, of your business fantastic
1: fascinating
0: thank you so much jazreen thank you
1: Thanks very much to Yathrin for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech who have been all working very hard behind the scenes.
0: Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at QTech.io slash QTalks.